Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. The world of the super rich. Congress is considering now taxing the super-rich in order to fund the new program that the President is putting before them. The plan is that over the next 10 years, the 10 richest people in this country might fund half of that program. I don't think they're going to be looking at my bank account. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being super-rich? Let me ask you three questions I want you to think about by way of introduction this morning. Let's just imagine that you had an unlimited bank account. You're one of those super rich billionaires, not just one billion, not just 20 billion, but 177 billion, like uh, Jeff Bezos. Hmm. How much would you pay to ransom your child? Let's say that your child was kidnapped. How much would you pay? The biggest ransom ever paid in history was paid back in the 16th century when the emperor of Peru was, uh, uh, the Incas, was ransomed and Francisco Pizarro was paid a room full of silver and gold, estimated in today's price or cost to be about a billion dollars. Can you imagine that? And more recently, the high was to ransom Jorge and Juan Borg, who were head of a grain company in Argentina. Back in the 70s, there were a number of these notorious kidnappings to fund terrorist groups like the Montañeros leftist group. And they eventually got what is equivalent to $293 million to ransom the two of them. Now, some of you are old enough to remember Patty Hearst. Remember William Randolph Hearst's daughter, kidnapped? by the Symbionese Liberation Army, and later she was coerced into forcing it. They didn't ask for money for them. What they asked was for Hearst to distribute food to the poor in California, and he eventually distributed $6 million, and she she was released. Probably the most amusing story, and some of you remember this, was J. Paul Getty III, who lived in Italy, and he was, a, he was kidnapped by Italian mobsters, gangsters. And his grandfather and father negotiated with him. They asked for $17 million to begin with. They talked him down. I don't know how they did this, but talked him down to $3 million. Now, the humorous part of it, at least for me, it wasn't humorous for J. Paul Getty III, was that his grandfather wasn't willing to pay the full ransom. You know what happened? They cut off his ear and sent it in the mail. That's the way that they finally got the Gettys to pay. And his grandfather wouldn't pay more than $2.2 million of the $3 million ransom because that, that was all that was tax deductible. <laughs> How much would you pay if you had unlimited money? Would you be worried about a tax deduction? I mean, after all, you've claimed the kid on your tax Let me ask you another question. If you were one of the super rich, how much would you pay to stay alive? Or maybe better yet, how much would you pay to keep a loved one alive? You've got all the money in the world. David Asprey, I've used this example before, a bulletproof coffee 
is a biohacker who is now 48 years old, who plans to live to 180. He has recently uh, published a book called Superhuman, The Bulletproof Plan to Age Backward or Maybe Even Live Forever. He has spent $1 million over the last two decades on supplements, injections, neurological treatments. He takes 150 supplements a day. He has had several stem cell treatments over various parts of his body. He bathes in infrared light, and he has undergone numerous hyperbaric oxygen treatments. How much would you pay to live another day, or if it were possible to live to 180? Let me ask you a third question. Let's say that you had unlimited resources. What would you do? How much would you pay for the ultimate trip or vacation? You know, it used to be to Antarctica. That was back when they had to fit out a, a boat specifically for that purpose. It cost a great deal of money. That cost has come down now. You can take a cruise to the Antarctic for less than $10,000. That's a bargain. Especially when you consider the new frontier of tourism, and you know what it is. Space. Today, private space travel has been advocated by Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Bezos's Blue Origin Company has flown 18 experimental flights from West Texas out near Van Horn. The most recent one on the 20th of July, 2021, was New the New Shepard craft, which had one spare seat for the four people that were going to be going on that trip. It lasted 13 minutes and 12 seconds. It just barely got into outer space and came back down. The cost of that seat was $28 million. You have unlimited resources. Would you spend that? You may have read in People magazine that in July, for three days, four passengers uh, went up into space and it cost them about $220 million, according to the Axiom Space Crew Program. That's the new frontier. Millions and millions of dollars that people are paying to get away from it all. The world of the super rich. There are about 2,700 billionaires in the world. Their total wealth is estimated to be about $1.3 trillion. A lot of money. Bezos, as we said, has... His worth is about $177 million. Three richest Americans, and they're going to be at the top of the list to fund this program you see by Congress. Elon Musk of Tesla, $151 billion. Bill Gates is down to number four in the world. Third richest American, $124 billion. It's pretty impressive. One, I said $1.3. I missed my decimal place. It's $13 trillion. But you know, that's only 15% of the gross national product of the world. As rich as they are, they cannot fund all the programs that all the governments in this world need to put in place to take care of their people, as impressive as it is. And it's nothing in comparison to what we read about this morning. It's nothing compared to God's superior and inestimable wealth. How do we usually describe that? Well, from Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the what? and the fullness thereof. Often when we talk about the wealth of our Father, we say that He is our Father, and He owns the cattle on what? Thousands of hills. Psalm 50. 
Psalm 104, the earth is full of your possessions. They're not ours, just as Fran prayed in her uh, offertory prayer. So my question is, how do we even begin to measure God's wealth? How do we even begin to fathom the immeasurable riches of God, and how does he use them? And that's the subject of this morning's passage in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse number 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You've probably gathered by now that we're in the middle of a, a short series about God's love. The past two weeks, the preparatory phrase before the title of the sermon is God's love. Two weeks ago, we talked about God's love from being to doing from 1 John 4. God is love, but he's not only is love, but he does love. He demonstrates his love, John tells us in that letter. Why? Remember, it is to make us beloved. To make us beloved through the unconditional sacrifice of his only begotten son, his beloved. And he expects us to do what as a consequence? To do what? To love the beloved. To love his son, who is the beloved and only begotten son, and also to love one another, beloved brothers and sisters. And then last week, we looked at another aspect of God's love from Ephesians 3, just one chapter after this. Grasping, taking hold of that which is unreachable, which is unfathomable. And in that, we discovered that God's strength comes through the riches of his glory. And the result of that is that we know Christ and we're rooted and grounded in love, and therefore we're filled with God's fullness that exceeds human knowledge. He meets every need, just as Fran prayed about again in the offertory prayer. He makes us available through his unfathomable riches in Christ. And that brings us to today's text in chapter 2. The background of that is God's riches are a key theme in the whole book of Ephesians. At the beginning, in chapter 1, he talks about our being recipients of God's riches of his grace. And he then talks about the nature and the power of those riches. In chapter 1, we have been redeemed according to his riches, forgiven and given an eternal inheritance, an inheritance in heaven that is rich in God's glory. It's been accomplished by his exceeding unfathomable power, and it's been secured by Jesus Christ through his resurrection in chapter 1, through his glorification in chapter 1, and then at the end of that, we are told that he is the head of all things and has been given to us as the church, authority over all. And so it brings us then to chapter 2. And in this passage, we see him then describe those unfathomable riches of Christ and God's glory. We see the source of this true wealth, we see the means by which he distributes it. And then, 
Paul tells us about why God does all this. So as we look at the first part of the passage, and I'm going to begin with verse 4b, the last part of of verse 4, because I think that's where it actually begins, the thought does, through the beginning of verse 5. And in that, we see that true wealth, true riches originate where? In God's abundant love. And then after that, in the beginning of verse 4, and then verses 5 and 6, we see that true wealth comes, the means, true wealth comes through God's rich mercy. And then finally, in verse number 7, we see why God does all of this. True wealth, first of all, originates in the abundance of God's love. You see, he begins with a but. Yes, that's true at the beginning of verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... But the source then is given because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. You see, the cause of God's mercy, the cause of God expressing his mercy is his great love. The mercy of God flows out of his love because we know from 1 John, it tells us that love is from God. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And God is love. It's great love. And we typically think of great as being mega. That's one of the words that's used in the New Testament for it. But it it, it doesn't really mean that here. It's not about the bigness of God's love here. Although, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. How big is God's love? We come to know the what? The height and the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love and the length of God's love. So it, it surely is a big love. But here, that's not what he's talking about. It's not the power of God's love. That's what we talked about in chapter 3, when we come to know Christ's love and the power that resides in us through the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Now, what's talked about here when it talks about the great love of God, the word that is used there is abundant. It is plenteous. It means that his love overflows endlessly in, in its extent. You see, even when we were sinners, he loved us. It it overflows and extends to the point that it even reaches us when we are beyond the pale. Even when we're sinners and we would be perceived to be beyond anyone's love, God reaches out and touches us. It's abundant in its depth, fathomless, inexhaustible, never-ending. There's enough of God's love for anyone and everyone who will respond to the gospel. Enough of God's love and the riches of his his grace to forgive all sin for all time. It's abundant in its generation. You see, God does not need our love to recharge his love. It is self-generating and it is abundantly so. It is abundant in its generosity. He gives selflessly and continues to give selflessly without any thought of reward. God's love is abundant because God is love and he is infinite. His love, therefore, is infinite. It's a love that acts. It says, with which he loved us. It's not just love in theory. It's not just a romantic ideal. It's it's a committed love, personally. It's committed to action. God is love. God says he loves, and then God does love. You see, the integrity of God's love is he says and does what he is, and he is what he says and he does. And he demonstrates this love personally. And you know the passage that I would go to as evidence of that, Romans 5, 8. It says that God has demonstrated his, his own love his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, 
Christ died for us. Not because we loved him. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. Not because we loved him. It is not that we love God, but the, he first loved us. And he demonstrated it by sending his son to be a what? A propitiation for our sins. To eradicate and to cleanse us of our sins. How great is this love? How great a love is it? Jesus said, greater love has no person than this, than that that person would what? Lay down his life for his friend. And then he says, you, you, you are my friends. You're no longer slaves. What he was saying is, that's how great my love is. I am going to die for you. He is the good friend. He is a good shepherd. When he spoke one of those I am statements in the Gospel of John, in John the 10th chapter, he said, I am the what? The good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, that's how great God's love is. Jesus laid down his life as our friends so that he might make us friends with God. Jesus laid down his life for us his precious sheep, so that he could return us to God's fold. That's how great God's love is through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, the beginning of God's mercy is in that great love. And then it, the means of sharing his riches is through this, this unfathomable, his unfathomable mercy. In verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, and then it's concluded with, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here we see the multifaceted nature of God's love, which was actually proclaimed in the Old Testament. How rich is this mercy of God? If you trace it through the Old Testament, what is promised, this mercy is that it is unfathomable in its scope. It extends to thousands, the Old Testament tells us, to thousands who love him. It lasts forever. His loving kindness endures forever. His bounty of mercy is plenteous. It covers a multitude, and it's as high as the heavens. His mercy is constant in the Old Covenant. He is faithful and he keeps his covenant with his people forever. It is reliable because his mercy is continuous from day to day in the morning, tomorrow. We know that we live by God's mercy. It is unfathomable in its provision. All of the resources in this creation were given to us to be stewards of. The earth is full of his goodness. His mercy is unfathomable. It is inestimable in its deliverance. He delivers us from our enemies, and he delivers us from captivity, just as he did in the Exodus, and he restores his that have been scattered, as he did in the restoration after the Babylonian captivity. His mercy in the Old Testament proclaims that it saves, it forgives all iniquity, it blots out all transgressions. His redemption is plenteous, it is permanent. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. He cast our sin, as it were, into the utter depths of the sea. His mercy is a matter of personal commitment in the old covenant. He listens whenever we pray sincerely. His mercy is comforting because he cares in his bountiful mercy for those who are afflicted. 
In the old covenant, his mercy is patient. Yes, he would punish sin, but he withholds his anger and he passes by sin when we then ask for forgiveness and he pardons us. All of those are things are promised about the abundance of God's mercy in the old covenant. And here in this passage, we see that it is fulfilled in the New Testament. The three questions that I asked you a moment ago are answered in this passage. What would you give to ransom a child? The ransom is spoken about here. You see, while we were dead in our transgressions and captive to sin, when we were in the clutches of the evil one, not because we were good, Christ died for us. We were made alive in Christ, it says here. What does that mean? It means that Christ's propitiation, his cleansing blood, purged and continues to purge us of our sin. His redemption then, Christ's redemption, he pays the priceless sacrifice and ransom to free us from captivity. We're made alive in Christ in that respect. We were dead in sin, but we have been reconciled with the Father through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we've been justified before the Father. And that's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our own riches. It's because of God's grace that are expressed through His inestimable mercy. You see, He has love and grace that is enough for everyone. Anyone who believes in Christ can be made alive. Romans 10 says, For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. So you see, the answer to the question about the ransom is this. I don't know how much you would pay for your child, but He paid everything with His Son. Wow. What about living another day, extending one's life? In this passage, we're told that we're given more than another day. We're given more than another decade. We're given more than years. We're given life eternal through Christ's resurrection. Jesus promised this, didn't he? Unlike Asprey's aspiration that perhaps even to live forever, no, he promised eternal life. As he looks at Lazarus' grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And when we then die to self and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're buried in Christ as we witnessed the example of that. Water baptism signifies what already spiritually has happened. We have died to self, and then we are raised to walk in what? A new life. And Romans 6 in that passage tells us then we are united with him in the likeness of his death, and we are raised then to walk in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what it means here when it talks about his being resurrected. We go not only from the promise of eternal life to the actuality. And Paul tells the Corinthians that the same Father who raised him up, who raised the Lord Jesus, will raise us up also with Jesus and will present us with him. So that answers the second question about life. What would you pay for extended life? He gave his son so that we might have eternal life. What about the ultimate trip? Well, we see this in Christ's glorification. 
You see, our reservation in heaven has been secured. I was reading in another one of these accounts where one of these companies was going to set up space hotels and charge $9 million for about three weeks in space. And you had to put down $80,000 as a reservation. Our reservation in heaven has already been paid. You see, he has prepared his son, Jesus Christ, promised, and he's done this. He has prepared a place for us in the Father's house. He has opened access to the Holy of Holies. He has rent the veil in two so that we have access to the holy place in heaven through the veil of his flesh. And he has invited us in what he proclaims in Revelation to the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our reservation is there. Now what Paul says here is very interesting. You see, he doesn't say, we will be seated. He says what? We are seated. We have been seated. He has seated us. You see, the verb there is an aorist verb. It's past tense, it's punctiliar, and it means that it has been been fully accomplished. You see, when he entered heaven and then he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, we are in Christ, we spiritually are in him. In Revelation 3, he says says to us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will do what? I will dine with that person and that person with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear, the Spirit says to the churches. He says to the church today, The Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven right now. And if we are in Jesus Christ, we're not really present there any more than he is really present there. But we are spiritually present in him as he is spiritually present with us today. As we gather around this table today, we celebrate that. We look forward to his return. We celebrate his death until he comes again. But at the same time, it is more than just this congregation that is united in communion. We're united with many other communions around the globe, all the communions around the globe that celebrate this. We are also united spiritually with the saints that have gone before us. Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. He is in heaven at the throne of God and spiritually he is present. Augustine, who composed the choral uh, anthem that you heard, we celebrate today spiritually with them as the family of God. You see, this begins now. It's not just later. While we are on earth, we're to have a heavenly mindset about this being present in heaven. Paul tells the Colossians, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Have you been raised up with Christ? Yes, you have, spiritually. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things on the earth. It begins now. So today, when you take that wafer and you put it in your mouth, the bread, and you consume it, and you're reminded of the body of Christ that is sacrificed for you, when you drink of the cup and you're reminded of the eternal blood that was shed so that, you might, that your sins might be purged and atoned for, you are celebrating in a spiritual communion that unites us with the, all that are in the kingdom of God. 
It has been accomplished in Christ. It simply hasn't been realized physically in your life. That will happen then when you're physically resurrected. Wow. The riches of His grace. How much would you pay for the ultimate trip? Christ paid already for you to go to be in the Father's house. And then finally, we see why God does all of this. Why does He do all of this? Why does he demonstrate his unequaled grace in verse number seven? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, this is an intentional demonstration. It says, so that he might show, and that word show means to demonstrate, to manifest, to prove something. What's he proving? He's proving that he who met Abraham, he who met Moses, He who established the covenant with Israel has kept his covenant promise with his people. He demonstrates that he has fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament in his son, Jesus Christ. He proves that he is consummating his eternal plan of redemption, which was set in eternity before the foundation of the world. And it's a personal demonstration. It's for each one of us today. He's demonstrating that and giving evidence to each one of us as we gather around the table that he is faithful to his promise. But it's more than that. This is a demonstration for all the ages in eternity. The angels are watching and also the spiritual forces of darkness are watching. And he is putting them on notice and he is affirming to the angelic host that he keeps his promise. And he keeps his promise through redeeming his children and restoring his lambs to the flock. It's a demonstration of God's grace, not because he's obliged to, but because of what? What does it say? Because of his kindness. He loves us with kindness, selflessly. It's not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because he cares, and he wants to bless his children. And it is a demonstration of the surpassing riches of his grace, The word there really means to throw beyond. It's something that is unreachable, unfathomable. I I like the definition, it is beyond equal. You see, God's grace is unequaled in every other experience of life. In the first chapter, his power is unequaled. His power was capable of doing something that has never been done in history before and has not been done since then. He resurrected his son from the dead to eternal life. In chapter 3, It is unequaled in the love of Christ that exceeds all human knowledge. And in this passage, as we close, his grace is unequaled because it is more than all the riches of all of the super rich today. More than 177 billion, more than 13 trillion, more than all of the riches of all the rich people that exist today. You see, it is rich in its eternity. For all of the ages to come, he has said, this is the truth, and I have established it. It is unequaled in its time. It is unequaled in its genuineness. These riches will pass away. The money in our bank accounts will evaporate. The gold and the silver will rust. But the riches of God will never You see, it's because they are embedded in and they are derived from his love from his character, from his kindness. And his kindness is forever. His kindness is genuine. It can never be corrupted. And then finally we see it is reliable forever because we find it in Christ. 
who has secured the riches of God for us in heaven. He is there today at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, even now making intercession for you and me, and He has prepared your place if you are a Christ follower. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you, yes, ransomed us from the captivity of sin and death and the evil one through the blood and the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who is obedient to death on the cross. That you went beyond that and that you give us life through the resurrection of your son. And just as you raised him up, you promised that you will raise us up when our time on earth is over, or that you will have us meet him in the air when he comes again. And finally, we thank you that you have confirmed this, that you have said it in eternity, that it is reliable that your son Jesus Christ has secured the promise of your riches for us. Our prayer this morning is, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that we will be mindful of the sacrifice of your son Jesus Christ and the riches that are bestowed upon us through your marvelous, unfathomable, inestimable, limitless, boundless grace. And for this we give you thanks. In the name of your son Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.